Amen. Last Sunday, we began looking at Psalm 30, and this week we're going to close that off. So if you have your Bible, would you turn with me to Psalm 30? Psalm 30. Last Sunday, we began the journey through this psalm, and we mentioned that Psalm 30 was a psalm that was all about turnaround. From start to finish, this psalm records change. One experience of the psalmist is described as being changed to another experience. One emotion, we're told, is transformed into another. One outcome transitions to become another outcome. This psalm is a turnaround psalm, and the result of turnaround is joy. And last Sunday, we spent our time looking at the journey that the psalmist was on and looking at what he had been through. And as we did, I guess, we kind of emphasized again that theme that has been something that God has been speaking to us about, that comfort is the gateway to joy. And David's journey is one in which he discovers that for himself. In fact, if you were to summarize this psalm, you would say that this psalm tells us that David found his joy again. Some of us need to find our joy again particularly with the past few years that we've been through and we did promise that we would stop talking about that thing that we faced, but we need to find our joy again because we've lost it along the way. And at the start of the year, as we embarked upon this journey into joy, we called out our intention and our commitment to challenge the thought process that joy was like a switch in the soul that you just flicked to the on position. We agreed that there is no joy setting in the human soul, that somehow the Holy Spirit just sweeps in and activates the joy setting and everything just turns into rainbows and sunshine. That's not the case, is it? As we navigate down this road then of exploding joy, please don't worry, we're not going down the route of everyone has to smile and skip and live like we're living inside a Disney musical. That's not the case. We're balancing this journey with realism and with a realism that recognizes there are times when things in life are far from great. And that was David's Psalm 30 journey. His Psalm contains some really heavy language. He tells us he's in the depths. He tells us that his enemies are gloating, that he's slipping into the realm of the dead and he's descending into the pit. At one point, he even tells us that he's dismayed and he calls out for God to bring help and to give him mercy. That's heavy stuff. It's heavy language. It's quite a picture that's painted for us here. And actually, when you read it, it can be a little bit depressing, but it's not all doom and gloom because his story is one of turnaround. And we use the word turnaround intentionally because this isn't a story of instantaneous change. This isn't a story of just sudden, spontaneous change. This is a story of gradual, intentional, significant, genuine transformation. In other words, this story is of him journeying in to joy. So let's unpack that and let's pick up the verses that we never quite made it to last week. Let's look at verse 4. It says, Sing the praises of the Lord, you his faithful people. Praise his holy name, for his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Now, as we mentioned last Sunday, David's Psalms are written based upon his understanding of God and his experience of life. And both of those dynamics are presented to us within just these couple of sentences as David begins to extol us and encourage us to worship. 
And the reason for his call is his experience and his understanding of God. And his understanding of God is that God is not an angry God. He's not one who harbors his anger. He's not one that likes to sit in his rage. He is not moody. He doesn't hold grudges or prolonged periods of anger. And as we say that, married couples in the room, don't dare look at one another. Don't, don't do it, right? <laughs> It'll get you into trouble. God is not a moody God. But his understanding is that God is one who looks favorably upon his children. He tells us his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Now, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and there's moments in which when we go back to the original Hebrew and explore the meaning of the words, there's moments in which we can begin to build a bit of a bigger understanding of what has been said. And the literal translation of this phrase from Hebrews is amazing, and it reads as this. Sing to the Lord, you saints of His, praise His holy name, for a moment in His anger lives in His favor. Those are encouraging words. Because it might sound a bit heavy to say, but there is no denying that there are moments when, as human beings living in a sinful nature, there are moments in which we provoke the anger of God. However, it's only a moment in His anger that then lives on forever in His favor. God is so gracious. He is so loving. His grace and compassion are so amazing. His forgiveness is so powerful and encompassing that a moment in His anger is quickly transitioned through grace to live on forever in His favor. He doesn't pin us to our transgressions. <clears throat> He doesn't constantly view us mistrustingly through the lens of our past mistakes. Because he did that mistake, I can never trust him again. He doesn't view us through the lens of previous grievances. He takes that moment in his anger and through grace, he brings it to live forever in his favor and in his goodness that you and I can navigate through life with this as our testimony. Surely goodness and mercy follows us all the days of our lives. Do you know what? David's right. This is a cause for worship. He is right to bring this revelation of God to us and to present it as a springboard for worship and a springboard for praise. God's anger only lasts a moment, but His favor over us and His favor towards us lasts for a lifetime. Child of God, maybe it's time to allow your own soul to begin to live in the favor of God. I often think of that story where the woman is caught in adultery and brought to the feet of Jesus and they pick up their stones ready to stone her to death and Jesus says, let he who's without sin cast the first stone and they drop the stones and walk away and then Jesus says an interesting phrase. He turns to the woman and says, who is left to condemn you? And the answer we come to is, well, no one, but there is someone, it's her. See, very often, we are good when we make mistakes and errors and we journey through that and we come and we bring it before God and God applies His grace and He moves on and people round about us and life moves on, but very often we carry the condemnation and the weight of that within our own souls. Maybe it's time that we need to forgive ourselves, to unpin our souls from condemnation and guilt and shame and let our soul live in the favor and in the forgiveness of God. It's time that we journeyed into joy again. Now, David, he commands us to worship based on his understanding of God, but he inspires us to worship based upon his experience of God also. And his experience is this. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing 
comes in the morning. Now, straight away, we notice some variables here, some opposites, weeping and rejoicing, night and morning. In this psalm, weeping is attached to the night. Again, what we have to remind ourselves is that we're dealing with a psalm here. This is a song. This is poetry in motion. So this is poetical, figurative, metaphorical language, not literal. Obviously, the literal definition of night is the period of time between sunset and sunrise. But in the Bible, the term night or the night is used metaphorically to convey a variety of meanings. At times, it's used to describe the experience in the state of death, where the night carries that metaphorical reference to life's day being over and the soul resting from the toils of life and awakening in the light of eternity. At times, night is used to denote a state of ignorance, describing those that are spiritually and morally unaware, even those who are intellectually closed off. They're described as stumbling about in the dark or stumbling about in the night. And the night can also be used to describe adversity, a period of affliction and distress, of difficulty and opposition can be dark times in the life of an individual or within a group of an individual, and that dark period can be linked to and likened to the night. Now, with our understanding of David's journey that we looked at last Sunday, we understand then that David is facing a time of adversity, a a time of real challenge and hardship and opposition. And this is a dark season for his soul. And interestingly, he tells us that his night season has a lodger. The Hebrew language for may stay, weeping may stay for the night, it means to stop over, to abide, to dwell, to lodge. So again, we could read this as weeping lodges, abides, and moves in for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Now, what's this weeping all about? Where's his weeping come from? What's caused his soul to express its emotion? Again, the word weeping means overflowing and sore. And this is quite stark and reflects where David has been. He's not in a great place. He's, he's been in a place of pain. This weeping is not merely the expression of an emotionally moved heart. It's not that he's watched the closing scene of Apollo 13 or Toy Story 3. Those are real tearjerkers for me. Obviously, it was just allergies in that moment, but apparently for some, this was emotionally moving stuff. He's not weeping because he's been provoked into some emotional response. Nor is he weeping because he's expressing that he's feeling a bit low or a bit sad. This weeping is flowing out of pain. It's flowing out of injury. It flows out of grief. And when we mention grief in our minds, we immediately associate grief with the loss of a loved one. It's when we lose someone, someone that we care about, that we begin to experience grief. That is that that pain, that dull throbbing sore in the heart, that experience of of the charisma and the personality being suppressed and heaviness and weariness attaching itself like a weight to the bottom of the heart and at times to the bottom of the stomach, that's what we associate with grief. However, psychology would teach us that while grief is a natural and common experience that accompanies bereavement, it's not purely in response to bereavement that we experience grief. Grief in its most simplest definition is a natural response to the experience of loss. 
And therefore, there are many things that can cause us to feel grief. Disappointment, abuse, emotional issues, moving house, moving church, moving country, culture, tragedy, trauma, sickness, marital issues, infertility, relationship or friendship breakdowns, financial issues, health issues, issues associated to age and aging. We could go on and on to list things that can contribute to an experience of loss and therefore evoke grief, but bringing a definitive list of the causes of grief is difficult because what might be a loss to one individual is not considered to be a loss to another. The loss of a job for someone might just be viewed as a door closing, a lesson learned in life that is quickly turned into an exciting search for a new opportunity. Whereas for another person, it can completely damage self-esteem and self-confidence, can cause a questioning of decisions and actions and can immobilize an individual. Everyone grieves in completely different ways. And for some people, working through grief and resuming life's activities as quickly as possible is their way of coping, whereas for other people, it can involve riding out our feelings, withdrawing for a period of time. And for some, it can even mean processing in perhaps a bit more of a public way or, or for a prolonged period of time. And I guess it's not unreasonable to suggest that the measure of grief experience will also be determined by our measure of loss, but that in itself is also very relative, isn't it? The point is that the experience of loss, however big or small it is, regardless of how ordinary and everyday or how sudden and tragic it is, the experience of loss triggers and brings with it an experience of grief. And grief it can be a bit like a bruise or an ulcer. It's only under pressure or when pressed that you're reminded that it's there. Sometimes it's the stresses of life, the pressurized moments that cause the contents that have been buried deep within us to just rise to the surface again. Those moments when the mind goes into replay mode and begins to relive past experiences and conversations and interactions. You know those moments when you think to yourself, why on earth am I thinking about this thing from years ago? Why am I, where does this come from? Why is it in my thought process? And it's almost as though as quickly as that memory rises, as quickly as the emotions that are attached to that memory bubbles up to the surface and takes over our thinking and our emotional well-being for a period of time. We've all been there. And grief, while we suggest that it's a natural response to loss, one of the things we have to understand then is that it's actually natural to feel these things. In fact, it's normal. We need to give ourselves a break sometimes. We need to go easy on ourselves. It's okay to feel feelings. It's okay to experience grief when we've experienced loss, even if the loss seems insignificant. The problem is not that we feel grief. The problem is when we don't process and deal with our grief and it lives unresolved in the soul. While many of us would like to skip the grief part of life, the truth is we can't. We just have to journey through it. If we fail to allow ourselves to journey through grief, then we will prevent our souls from ever journeying into joy. We cannot lay hold of grief, of joy, until we have fully processed our grief. It's a barrier. 
And when we describe grief as a barrier, we're not talking about it like an obstacle that just needs to be maneuvered and worked around. It is a literal barrier that will stop us ever entering into joy. We have to process our grief if we want to lay hold of joy. Scripture reflects that. Ecclesiastes, it says there's a time for everything. There's a season for every activity under heaven. A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. According to Ecclesiastes, everything has its allocated time. There's seasons for everything. And importantly, Scripture says there will be seasons of grief. There will be times when grief is going to happen. So time has to be made for weeping and mourning. We're not supposed to hit skip on those parts and just skip past them. Because as Christians, we should always be full of the joy of the Lord and always smiling and dancing and celebrating and presenting to the world that God is always good. He is always good. But here is the bigger truth. We have to make time for grief. We have to make time for grief. And I realized that over the last wee bit as we've been looking at this and we're talking about we're journeying into joy and things have been a little bit heavy that God has been having us look at, but that's because we have to process this stuff. We have to make room for this stuff. We have to make time to deal with grief and pain and hurt if we ever want to enter into joy. Comfort is the gateway to joy. So we need to permit our hearts to grieve, to feel, to reflect, But on the flip side of that, we also need to permit our hearts to move on, to let go of grief and lay hold of joy. So in a sense, this morning we speak to two groups of people. This morning we speak to those that have suppressed their grief. You need to let your soul feel. You need to let your heart process and your innermost being breathe. Relinquish control. Let your grief out and journey through it. But equally, we speak to those that have journeyed through the valley of the shadow of death, and we say this, it's actually okay to come out the other side of the valley now. It's okay to let go, it's okay to move through, and it's okay to move on. See, what Ecclesiastes and Psalm 30 both teach us is that grief, while a common experience, grief is not meant to be permanent. David tells us, weeping may stay for the night. Grief, while natural, isn't meant to be permanent. It's only meant to last for the night. And again, please hear, that's the figurative night. It's not that we're saying, okay, we'll give you one night, get all your grief out, and then you're done, right? That's not what we're saying. It's a figurative thing here. It only lasts for the night. And even then, look at the language. David says, it may remain for the night. It's not a definite. It's not a given that grief will lodge with us for prolonged periods of time because grief is not meant to be permanent. It's an experience that we all have to face, but it's one that God wants to complete with joy. And that's good news, right? It's good news, right? Just checking you're still alive. Weeping may stay for the night, David says. There's the variable, there's the possible. But... Here comes the definite part. Here's the bit over which there is no question marks. It doesn't say weeping may stay for the night, but if you're lucky, if you're good enough, if you're holy enough, if you're one of the the chosen frozen few, 
There are no if buts and maybes attached to this. He says, weeping might stay for the night, but here comes the absolute definite. Rejoicing is going to come in the morning. As certain as morning follows the night is as certain as God's plan is for joy to follow grief. And David's experience of life and his experience of God is that mourning doesn't have the final word. Mourning does. He's been on a bit of a journey. He's faced and navigated some pretty heavy and some pretty serious stuff. But God has journeyed him through his grief and has brought him into joy and has brought him to a place where he finds his joy again. He has learned to rejoice again. And as he does, his soul begins to boast in God. He says, sing praises of the Lord, you his faithful people. Praise his holy name. Sing praises to him. He's in this place of delighting in God. He's in a place where he's boasting in God. He, he revels in God. And as he does, he's got the cheek to call us to do the exact same. He's learned to rejoice again. And the reason he's learned to rejoice again is because God has journeyed him through grief and into joy. God's desire is to interrupt the night season of our souls with the light of his joy. His intention is that at the right time, it's not flicking a switch, it's not an instant you don't feel this anymore and now you feel this. His intention is that at the right time, he's going to bring night to a conclusion and he's going to open up a brand new day and a brand new season in our lives. So if you're in the night season of the soul right now, understand this, mourning doesn't have the final word. Mourning does. Grief is the process, but it's not the destination. You are journeying through the valley of the shadow of death, but you're journeying through it. You're not called to live in it. You're not called to camp there. You're called to journey through it. So if you're on that journey right now, hold on, because morning is coming. If you're in the midst of this right now, hold on, because the new day is going to break upon the horizon. Hold on, because at the right time, in his time, he's going to interrupt the night season with something beautiful and something breathtaking, because as sure as morning follows the night, as sure as those dark clouds will break, as sure as the heaviness is going to lift and the sunrise is going to illuminate for you a whole new landscape of life and living. Hold on. Morning doesn't have the final word. Morning does. David tells us, You've turned my wailing into dancing. You've removed my sackcloth and clothed me in joy that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord my God, I will praise you forever. Now forgive me for jumping back into the Hebrew for a moment, but there is so much within these words of these final verses that when we understand it, it brings the whole psalm in its entirety to life. The word wailing here means mourning. The word dancing means to dance in a round, as in to spin around and twirl. And it's interesting that the Hebrew word that's used here for dancing is only used a total of six times in the Old Testament. And each time that it's used, it's used to describe a dancing that is attached to celebrating a new day or a dancing that is attached to the lifting of mourning. So that means that this dancing then is an outward expression of joy. And this is David's experience. His description is that God has removed the sackcloth 
and clothed him with joy. Sackcloth was worn in the Old Testament times as an outward expression of an inward experience. It was the worn symbol of a grieving soul. And David's experience is that God brings such a powerful and deep transformation into his life that his transformation is actually tangibly seen, like wearing a new frock or a new outfit. It's tangibly seen. He is now clothed with joy. He has been visibly visited with joy. And the word clothed here, it means to bind or to gird with joy. And when you say gird, you instantly think of iron brew, don't you? Made in Scotland from girders. And the connotation here, actually, is to fast securely. It's to strengthen or make secure. David's experiences of being brought into strength is of being brought to a place where joy is so profoundly fastened onto his soul that not only does the joy of the Lord bring him strength, but it also brings him security. And this is indeed then a turnaround. From dismay and enemies gloating, from sinking to the depths on the brink of death and hitting rock bottom. David is now in a place of strength and security where his joy is tangibly seen because it's now become the very culture of his soul. This is a turnaround story. And the key that unlocks that whole story as an experience for you and for me is indeed in the fact that David's confession is that God turned his mourning and grief into a deep-rooted joy. The word for turned means to retire. David's confession is that God put his grief into retirement. And that's an interesting choice of words. When someone retires, they stop working. When someone retires, they no longer each day go to work. I've got another 27 years in front of me. Those of you that are in retirement, bless you. Hope it's the sun shines. But David's experience is that God put his grief into retirement. He stopped grief from working in his life. He stopped grief from having an influence in his life. Instead, he brought him to a place where his heart was bound to joy, and in fact, so deeply ingrained is the joy in his soul that he says, he causes my heart to sing, and I will not be silent. The word sing, it means to, to touch the strings of the parts of a musical instrument, to make music with, to celebrate. This is a picture here. God puts David's grief out to pasture. He kicks it into the long grass and he girded up his soul with joy. That is, he secured David to joy. He bound him to joy. He so transformed the culture of David's soul that his soul came to life to the point that his soul was boasting in God and refusing to be quiet. For David, with a new dawn came a new song, a new expression of worship. And an expression of worship that was not manufactured or manipulated, it was not delivered because it was commanded to be so, it was not delivered out of a sense of duty or compulsion, but it was a song that came because God had so powerfully changed the culture of his soul that the very beating of his heart was like the strumming of a musical instrument. The ministry of God and awakening his heart to life again, the movement of God in his innermost being was like the movement of a maestro on the keys of a piano, like a virtuoso on the harp. 
God's ministry in his innermost being caused his soul to make music, to explode in expressions of joy. And you know, we, we all have to journey through grief and mourning. We all have to navigate at times through the valley of the shadow of death. We have to journey through grief if we want to fully journey into joy. But our mourning doesn't have the final word mourning does. And God assures us, as surely as morning follows the night, is as sure as he's going to interrupt the night season of our souls with the sunrise of a new day. His desire is to put our grief into retirement that it would no longer operate in our lives. His commitment to us is this, there will be days when we will wake up and we will not feel that instant jolt of grief getting to work every day, day in and day out. His desire is that grief will give way to joy and he'll bring us to a place of girding us, clothing us, binding us to his joy so deeply and so richly that the very epicenter of who we are will learn to rejoice again as his ministry in our lives makes music in our hearts and our mornings turn to dancing and our sackcloth is replaced with joy. Now, all of that sounds great on paper. But if it's not a light bulb moment, if it's not a flicking of the switch moment, if there is no joy setting that the Holy Spirit just sweeps in and activates to make everything sunshine and rainbows, then how do we transition into joy and learn to rejoice again? Well, let me wrap this whole message up with an example. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Exodus 14 as we navigate to a conclusion. Exodus 14, and we're going to read from verse 10. It says, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. The, the Israelites were terrified and called out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there was no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid, stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord. You'll see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. In verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. In verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and their horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak the sea went back to his place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the, were swept into the sea and not one of them survived. Here's the context of the verses that we've read, and I promise just five minutes and we'll finish. The context is this. The Israelites lived in the land of Egypt enjoying the favor of Pharaoh due to the influence of Joseph. However, Joseph dies, the Pharaoh dies, and a new Egyptian king ascends to the throne. And he's threatened by how numerous the Israelites are, so he puts them to work and he oppresses them. The Israelites lose their favored position. And in the process, they lose their experience of freedom. So we can say they've had an experience of loss. 
And on top of that, they then find themselves on the receiving end of brutality and of torture. Grief kicks in. This is a dark season, a night season in the life of the Israelites. But God's intention is not to leave them there. God's intention is to put their grief into retirement and bring about a whole new season for them, a whole new season that is marked by exceeding joy. And that plan kicks into action through Moses. After seven plagues, Pharaoh lets the Israelites go. But he's a bit fickle as this Pharaoh. He's a fickle Pharaoh. And after a period of time, he, he hardens his heart and, and he goes after the Israelites. And just as the Israelites think they're gaining their freedom, they lose the hope of that as well. They turn around and they see the Egyptian army coming after them. And that's when we pick up the story in the verses that we've just read. In verse 10 to 12, as they see the Egyptians coming after them, they feel as though their night season is never going to end and they're going to be stuck there and they begin to express their grief. Was it because there was no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? It'd been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. They express their grief. Moses responds to them with a very important instruction. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you'll see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. As the story unfolds, the key phrase for us is actually in verse 21. All that night, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into the dry land. I don't know about you, but in my Sunday school experience of this story, even watching some really cheesy Hollywood movies about this story, I kind of emerged with the thinking that Moses just lifted his staff and the waters instantly parted before him. Actually, according to the scripture, that's not what happened. It says, all through that night, God pushed the sea back. It wasn't instantaneous. It was a process. All through what was probably the darkest night for the Israelites, God was at work. He was working through the night to put their grief into retirement. He was working over a period of time to bring their night season to a close. They had to wait for God in his unique way and in his unique timing to bring their night season to a close and to end their grief. But here's the thought though. Did the Israelites wait until the sea was fully parted before they journeyed through? Or was there a bit of Glaswegian in them that saw an opportunity and just seized it? Was there perhaps the chance that they began their journey as soon as they began to see the dry ground and the waters beginning to part. I'd like to think that as God was pushing the waters back, the Israelites were at the same time journeying across the Red Sea, that as they journeyed with God through that moment to the other side, that God literally journeyed them through their grief and into a new day. And at the beginning of Exodus 14, we have the Israelites expressing their inner grief and seeing no way out. At the beginning of Exodus 15, we're told that they stand at daybreak. So they're literally in a new day, but they're spiritually in a new day because God has ended their night season once and for all as they watched the water sweep over the Egyptian army and removing their influence forever. God put their grief into retirement. Never again would they experience grief from this source ever again. 
And as their grief is put into retirement and mourning rises literally and spiritually on a new day, notice what happens. The first verse of Exodus 15 record the first actions of the Israelites on the other side of the Red Sea. It says they sang to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. At sunset, they're grief stricken. Not sure if their night season's ever going to end. At sunrise, their grief is gone and their hearts make music before God because he's turned their grief into joy. What caused this? They stood firm and waited for the Lord to fight for them. And as they waited on him, through the night, he was at work journeying them through grief and into joy. When your heart is gripped with grief, when the night season falls on your soul and the colors of life merge into gray and heaviness takes up residence, hold on. Morning doesn't have the final say the morning does. And as sure as morning follows the night is as sure as joy is going to follow grief because grief is not permanent. This current experience is not your final destination. This is not your forever. Stand firm and wait on him. He is working through your night right now to put your grief into retirement. He is working through your night season right now to secure you, to bind you, to fasten you to his joy. He plans to complete your grief with his joy. He will bring you into a new day and with that new day will come your new song as you learn to rejoice again and find your joy in him. Child of God, stand firm and wait. Cease in your striving. You have to journey through grief in order to fully journey into joy. So trust the process fasten to him, hold to him, wait on him. He is working in your night to bring forth his morning. And morning always has the final word.